everybody. This is How to Win Friends and Influenza. I'm your host, Lily. To begin this episode, let's revise a bit of world history. In 2005, Snape killed Dumbledore. In 2010, Lady Gaga shocked the world with her delicious or very disgusting meat dress, depending on your point of view. And in 2017, Donald Trump officially became the President of the United States. This all goes to show that life can be very surprising. So many unexpected things can happen and there's uncertainty all around. In fact, it's often said that the only thing certain in life are death and taxes. But I'd argue that even taxes aren't that certain. If you're working in medicine already, you're probably paying a bit of tax. But all those impoverished medical students out there, well, they have a pretty good deal on not paying any tax at all. So that leaves us with just death. It's a fact that everybody who's born dies. Now, medicine is a really wonderful field and it's all about helping people. I hope that's what we're all here for. So think of the patient who comes into the emergency department after a catastrophic motor vehicle accident. You definitely want to do what you can to help them survive. So it's pretty well established that medicine generally has a curative intent to prolong life. But eventually, there might come a point where the healthcare goal changes. And of course, this is in discussion with the patient and their family. So ironically, as unavoidable as death is, it's sometimes very difficult for clinicians to accept that. I mean, it's natural, you want to do what's best for your patient and it can be tough to realize that sometimes it's not about loading up more chemotherapy or doing more surgery. Sometimes it's about making people more comfortable at the end of their life. And rather than prolonging life, it might be about seeking the best quality of life that you can for your patient. So this is called palliative care. And it's my great privilege to introduce Dr. Catherine to the show. Now, Dr. Catherine is an experienced palliative care specialist, clinical lecturer, and avid fan of Lady Gaga. Well, not really. She's just a really cool aunt who does some musical research to humor her nieces. So, Dr. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. No, it's, it's a great privilege. I'm just so curious, though. How, how did you fall into palliative care? Ah, now that is a really common question that a yeah. lot of people ask me because everyone sort of says, what do you do? And it's like, oh, I'm a palliative medicine specialist. Mm. And it's sort of like, oh, oh, that must be interesting. You must be a very special person to work in that kind of area. It must be so sad. Mm. It's like, actually, all of adult medicine, there's a lot of carnage. So... On a day-to-day -day level, when I was a medical student, when I was a sort of registrar and resident, um, you look after patients who are really sick and who have chronic illnesses and aren't gonna get better from them. So we go about the business of trying to manage those illnesses the best we can to kind of give them the best quality of life for the longest mm. possible time. So there's lots of specialties. I always wanted to be a physician because delivering babies was not for me. Giving anaesthetics, it's a bit, you know, putting people to sleep and waking them up, not for me. Uh, never really wanted to be a big cutter. So surgery wasn't me. So it was always sort of physician bound training right. for me because I really found the puzzle of multi sort of system illnesses good to try and work out. And it was challenging and you got a bit of psychology in there and family dynamics and all that sort of interesting stuff. Um, and so that's what I loved. So I always knew I was going to do some kind of physician specialty and I love the challenge of acute hospital medicine. Um, so I chose as a specialty uh, medical oncology and that was a choice between sort of geriatrics, respiratory medicine, because they deal with sort of the whole person and all of these illnesses that might affect a lung or multi-system involvement mm. in illnesses. So I did medical oncology uh, and the bits I found I really liked out of that were the bits looking after patients with metastatic disease because they had lots of problems that needed solving. Um, and 
kind of the icing on the cake in that you can add a lot of value for a sort of a moderate kind of input. So to actually listen to someone and find out what their needs are and address those can make a huge amount of difference to their quality of life and how they understand their illness and how that fits into their world, their family, their social setting and all those sorts of things. So I found increasingly I was finding giving chemotherapy and prescribing chemotherapy a little bit um, less interesting for me than actually nutting out some problems and dealing with some you know, multi-system problems related to cancers. So I thought, why don't I just do that for a job? And so I kind of steered off the medical oncology path into looking after the sicker patients with metastatic disease. Um, and so that's how it started out. Um, but I always really enjoyed looking after sicker people because they're the ones that need our help rather than the walking wounded sort of thing. So yeah. I've always been drawn to that kind of area. And um, one of the things that I found in most palliative care teams and most teams working with cancer services is that there are a lot of really, um, I think, self-selected people who actually enjoy working with sick people and actually work well in a team together. And so that whole thing of, oh, it's so much carnage, it's so sad, it's like, yes, it is. But that's spread amongst all of my colleagues and we all share that kind of burden and we all talk about it and it's sort of the elephant's already you know it's in the room and it's unwrapped because we actually can talk about death and we can talk about carnage we've got permission to do that um, so that I enjoy too the teamwork of working with multi-professionals so it might be radiation oncologists or surgeons or now with our sort of 40 percent of our stuff being non-cancer, um, renal physicians and neurologists and lots of different people, general practitioners, families, across the board. There's almost, I go to intensive care, there's nowhere I don't get to in this hospital. So it's uh, challenging and interesting. So it's like general medicine for the really sick people. Mm. Mm. So that's a really interesting insight because, you know, the initial reaction of a lot of people will be, oh, that's so sad. How do you cope with that? But it sounds like there's a really uplifting side to it. And I just want to make a bit of an odd analogy with, with something you mentioned. You said there's permission to talk about death. So I find, uh, you know, in this modern society, there are so many people on, say, dating apps, mm -hmm. Tinder and that sort of thing. And, and I've heard it's because uh, it takes away that layer of awkwardness with the whole asking people out, you know, so they can get that out of the way and just get on with the whole dating business. And I suppose in a way, palliative care does that without any of the dating. It kind yeah. of takes away that taboo of, of death, you know, in other specialties where it's all curative. If you mention any possibility of end of life death, that would really scare people. But once that obstacle is overcome and it becomes okay to talk about, I think that really changes the whole goal of care. Yeah, like I take, take for example a guy I saw last week yep. and he had metastatic melanoma and he has progressive disease on a trial and standard therapy and he came to see me because he'd been sent to the palliative medicine clinic and he had a lot of tumour in his head and he was about to sort of undergo a procedure to scoop that out really. Um, and he came into the clinic and he looked a bit pale and sweaty mm. and a bit revolting and he's kind of like, I'm, I said, oh, you know, what can I do for you today? And he's going, well, I don't really want to be here because the word palliative, I don't really mm. like it and I don't really. I said, okay. I said, okay, well, what's sort of, what's frightening for you about that? And it's sort of, he then unloaded and sort of said, look, I know I've got metastatic melanoma. I know I'm dying and I'm going to die from this. I really hope these treatments turn the ship around. But I've got one foot in, grounded in reality saying my plan A is I'm going to get better and a miraculous immunotherapy is going to help, and it might. Probably not, because he's had already a chop at immunotherapy. 
So I sort of have an understanding uh, and need to have a good understanding of how the drugs yeah. work in oncology as well. So I kind of have an idea of whether he's got a low chance or a high chance of responding. It's like, mm-hmm. How much is he grounded in reality? What's our plan B? So he told me he didn't want to end up on a machine. He didn't want to end up having horrible CPR. He wanted to die with dignity. He's got his will sorted out. He's got a loving relationship with his wife and he's got this amazing relationship with his children and his grandchildren. Uh, And that's his goal is to be there for them. Uh, He doesn't want to end up like the guy on the ads at the moment for cancer that's like on the oxygen machine sitting up there. And he goes, I don't want to end up like that guy on TV. And I was like, what guy on TV? He goes, you know, the oxygen on the smoking ad at the moment. I'm like, oh. (laughs) So just talking about how he's likely to die with his melanoma being in his head was something that he, he... got some relief out of it. It's like, how, how do you, he was able to ask, how do you think I'm going to die? Yeah. And we talked about it and it was sort of what I think is going to happen is you'll progress intracerebrally and that will cause drowsiness and we will look after you. You know, it may cause some seizures, it may cause this and that, but there are sorts of things that we take care of you. And for me to take care of you, I need to know you and know what your wishes and your goals are. So we spent about 20 minutes talking about all of that. And at the end he went, you know, I'm just so glad we've had this conversation. I feel so relieved that yeah. that's taken care of. And I said, you know, he goes, you just need to change your name. I just don't want it to be palliative. <laughs> it's like, here is someone who's talked about death yeah. for 20 minutes and how he wants it to happen and what his goals are. And now I understand what he wants. Um, his wife was very concerned that he gets a end-of-life care plan documented. And I said, don't worry, we will do that. Um, but no one else had talked about that with him and he really wanted to talk about it and now it's talked about sorted it's put in a box and he said okay I've dealt with the plan b now and I'm really happy with that and I'm actually quite relieved but I just don't want to be called palliative and I don't want to have the palliative tag and I don't you know I can't believe you don't change your name to something else what would you change it to (laughs) (laughs) well there's debate in the community everywhere because everyone the word palliative latin means to cloak so I suppose that sort of cloaking symptoms or managing symptoms knowing the underlying cause is still there so for some services they're called supportive care for some it's called hospice care for some it's called palliative care I don't think it would matter if we called it you know marshmallows and ice cream <laughs> people would soon recognize yeah. that that's the end of life phase and yeah. it's dealing with serious illness and and that uh, for some people they just don't want to talk about that sort of stuff but when you ask them what their needs are and what you can do for them that's when you open up the can of worms and often people do want to have their wishes known and they want to talk a little bit about their fears uh, and sometimes that's tears and sometimes that's a big relief of, okay, I'm still headed on plan A, but I know someone's got my back for plan B. Happy to meet you, you know. What are some of the common fears? Do they vary very much across people? or Hugely varied. Some people are frightened of having CPR, having being intubated, having shocks and, and being cardioverted and things like that and having an arrest go on. Some people are mortified of those sorts of things. To the other extreme of some people are frightened that if we don't do those things, they'll actually be alive, but we're in a comatose state right. that they can't tell us that they really... So people have irrational fears that, that cover an enormous spectrum. So. I never assume what someone's fears are because they're so varied. And over the years of doing this, I have come to realise, you know, you never know what's going on between someone's ears unless you ask them. Right. And so I'm never shocked by the what 
I might think might is really unusual fears that people have about death. People fear about being buried alive and that how will you really know, Doctor, that I'm dead? Um, you know, all sorts of things that you think, oh, gosh, that's pretty obvious. And, you know, it's assumed knowledge for us and you will probably know that's happening in your family will and it's sort of pretty rare to these days to get through a morgue and uh, I would hope so <laughs> a funeral parlor and <laughs> all of those things so just to talk about it and have that you know package of the hidden taboo unwrapped and let them direct the conversation of where they are fearful is sometimes just a relief to have it out there on the table yeah and I think one of the misconceptions about palliative care is oh it's all spiritualness and and hand-holding which is certainly a part of it empathy and communication but there is also quite a lot of medical management because at the end of life there are things like um, pain is quite a big thing nausea vomiting um, how much of your time is split between say the empathy side and the medical side yeah um, probably because I'm in an acute hospital yep. and I'm a physician yep. uh, Every consult I get is usually grounded in a medical problem. Sure. So whether that be nausea and intractable nausea, and sometimes that nausea is a percentage of gastric stasis or a physical symptom or a bowel obstruction, and sometimes it's an overlying existential distress and just that mm. sickening in the stomach from anxiety and right. just being really frightened um, and needing someone to talk to. And I suppose um, not everyone is religious, but human beings are inbuilt with a, a spirituality, and I suppose you've come across this um, in all sorts of domains. And some is organised religion, but it's really about what brings individual people meaning, what brings meaning in your life. And for some people, I ask every patient um, what brings them meaning or what is important to them. And for some people, that is organised religion, and it is a sermon denomination, and it's asking if they want to see the chaplain from that denomination. For other people, it's family or it's been a music or it's been a hobby that is a very sort of meaningful and you know I don't know spiritual thing for them so it's dealing with that as well as dealing with you know hardcore symptoms so probably for us in the acute setting a lot of that is hardcore symptoms and so for some patients uh, and so the guy I just saw just upstairs uh, he doesn't need he's 86 He's got a large transitional cell carcinoma of the kidney. He's got low blood pressure and he's got bone marrow failure. He doesn't need his cholesterol-lowering drug. He doesn't need his blood pressure medicines anymore. But there they are written on the med chart. So it's kind of stepping back and almost being the general physician for him because he's under a surgeon and sort of saying, you know, prognosis dictates he should have stopped that cholesterol-lowering drug maybe 20 years ago. But nonetheless, today's the day for it. And I've yeah. stopped that and stopped his blood pressure medicines and someone else today I've stopped their metformin because it's his blood sugars are five and he's giddy and it's like well they're probably three at other times so it's a bit of diabetes management a bit of managing all of those concurrent illnesses so I'm probably a general physician around the hospital yeah so a lot of medicine really I do a lot of medicine which is the good and interesting bit but I also get to sit down and ask what's important for people and what should I know about them that helps me to care for them and sometimes it's you know I like my unicorn pillow on my bed every day. It's like, okay, right, got it. Unicorn pillow has to go on the bed. For other people, it's knowing that I am so frightened of death. I never want you to mention the word, but I know it's coming and we can talk all the way around it, but please don't just, and it's like, sure, but I can ask, is there anything I can do for you today? And 
the sort of written code is what you know people will answer how they how they want to so varies hugely so some of that is that sort of empathetic compassionate having a good laugh sometimes too with patients because some really funny things happen and keeping people's you know sense of humanity and that connection with dignity and humanity is really important too and we dehumanize people so much in hospital it's good to sort of have that human side as well and sit down sometimes and just chew the fat a little bit of who the pictures are around the bed who did that drawing of the rainbow next to your bed you know and it might have been a long story of how that came about so giving people a little bit of time to tell their story yeah I assume the definition of a good death varies immensely across people but certain characteristics are probably common to everyone like wanting um, to go with dignity having your pain well controlled and being comfortable maybe having your family around you do you have any good stories about um, requests that you, you were able to make happen at the end of life like I've heard some stories about uh, doctors smuggling cats in to yeah, oh, we have like dogs all the time come to our ward. You've probably never seen a dog at Westmead Hospital in the wards. No. No, we have one come about once every, I don't know, probably about every three months. We have some four-legged friends. Um, quite often these days people have those little schnoodly doodly, you know, they used to be called mongrels, but now they're like special designer <laughs> breeds. Um, and they're quite easy to get in the handbags and right. little carriers. They're easy. Um but we've had like a uh, couple of month old like border collies come yeah. in that are quite boisterous and like good fun <laughs> and they've come in but we sneak them up the fire stairs and we let nursing management know they're coming in the after hours nurses yep. um, they come in they do a beeline for the room and we have them in the room and quite often they get into bed with their owners oh. and have a snuggle in there and with the unicorn pillow yeah, yeah all of that which is kind of like quite often it's I'm missing my dog and I've had, you know, your big, tough Croatian boys from Fairfield that you think, don't want to cross this dude because some of those tattoos mean business. And it's kind of in tears of yeah. what can I do for you? And it's like, I'm really just missing my best friend. And it's like, who's your best friend? Can we call them? Can we bring them in? It's like, it's my dog. It's at home. It's like, oh, what's your dog's name? And it's like, oh, it's Snoopy. And it's like, what is Snoopy and it's like Snoopy's a little mongrel I got from the pound and he's so little and sure enough Snoopy will come in looking like the most ragged you know unloved flea-bitten thing in the country but it's like to that person Snoopy was the world and so it's things like that so we have dogs and and uh, feline friends come in quite often for visits the weirdest pet we've had come in was at the Mount Druitt Palliative Care Unit. It's sort of surrounded by grass and a bit more open air and someone's horses came in. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just casually galloped so, in. Yeah, they brought them in a horse float and brought them around the back of the unit and there they were outside the patient's room so they could go out and pat their horses and give oh, them a cuddle and say good. goodbye to their horses. So, yeah. yeah, we do have some odd things come in. So, yeah, all sorts of requests because it's really by, you know, trying to find out what people now some people ask for lobster and it's sort of my colleague Philip whipped out and got one of his patients a lobster because that's all she wanted she was oh. vomiting and nauseated but was there anything you do for she goes I just want to eat a lobster oh tail. not not a pet lobster she wanted no, to eat it she wanted to eat it <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. so we went out and got her a lobster it's sort of like we put mouth swabs uh, yeah. dip them in scotch and get people to have them oh. in their mouth or beer or yeah. whatever so trying to bring in and it's sort of like I haven't had a drink for so long. And it's like, well, do you want one? It's like, yeah. 
I said that to one patient once and um, I said, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. You can have whatever you want to drink. And he was a New Zealander mm. who'd grown up in the Sav Blanc country of New Zealand. Next thing you know, he's got a four litre cask of Sav Blanc by his bed. And I went to see him the next day and he said, sit down, doctor, sit down. He's breathless and had gone away. He wasn't anxious. I'm like, what's going on? He's going, would you like a drink? And it's in a hospital, like polystyrene cup yeah. full of Sav Blanc. Nine o'clock in the morning. He goes, this is my third for the day. I was just like, wow. Pissed as a new. I said, no, I might have to hold off and I won't have a drink with you today. But he died a couple of days later. And it was just sort of like that to him. That was a big thing. That was a huge thing. That was his goal was to, you know, he hadn't been allowed to drink, couldn't drink in hospital. He loved wine. He was obviously a big drinker. And it's like in the big scheme of life, it's I know where his disease is. I know what his prognosis is. So it's really about what's important to them yeah so future gastroenterologists we're not saying to prescribe alcohol for everything (laughs) i think it just shows how sometimes the goals of care can really change depending on uh, the patient's stage in life now i think any discussion of palliative care isn't complete until we mention tears which you did mention earlier with your story about the croatian fellow um what do you think about the appropriateness of clinicians showing very overt emotion because you do have that balance between professionalism and empathy so what do you think is good to show? Yeah, look, I think um, everyone manages this differently. And for me, um, it's very different. These people are not my family and yeah. my intimate friends. So I have a different relationship with them. And my role is to be their doctor. So to give them really accurate information, to care for them the, the best way I possibly can and um, to know what they need. So I think that that sort of sets the tone for that sort of interactions that you have. Some people uh, or their families or their situation might remind you very much so of friends or family and particularly um, some of my colleagues, um, you know, when you have a young woman dying of breast cancer and she may have young children that you totally relate to, you know, when they're howling and, and crying on the bed saying, how can I leave my children? Like I, I have to keep fighting, I have to keep going at this and it's like absolutely we're here to help you do that. But we also need to plan for the reality of this breast cancer is marching on despite that. And quite often, you know, you put yourself instantaneously in the position of leaving your family or your children. And I think it's very normal to to be upset by that. So sometimes you do tear up with a patient and that's not a bad thing. Um, It's still remaining, um, I think, in control of your own emotions so that you can be accessible for the patient, though, not getting carried away with your needs and your wants because that's time away from the patient you can do that when you debrief with colleagues and talk about that later Um, but when you're there for the patient you are present for them and so their needs are the the thing that's most important so sometimes you do you know sometimes I do tear up a little bit and often our junior medical staff coming across some of these conversations for the first time get really teary and that's okay it's perfectly okay this is this is carnage and a lot of you know, there's nothing deeper to humans than the end of life, I think, and what's going to happen and the sadness of cleaving from everything in this world. So I think you'd be a little bit of um, non-human, I think, if you didn't get upset about that and it didn't affect you. So it's working strategies that you can put in place for yourself to care for yourself and to keep working in this. Yeah, what are some of those strategies? Um, You mentioned debriefing with colleagues. Is there anything yeah. else you'd recommend? Yeah, lots of things. You know, um, For most of us that work in this area, people have an interest outside medicine as well, and that's a really healthy thing to do. And I encourage everyone at a really young age in the medical whole fraternity 
to really work at, yeah, your medicine, but really work at some balance in life. And that's good general advice, not just palliative care, but yeah. for every specialty. And you have to work at it because we get all the trainees, when you finish your basic training, you've studied for 12 months and all you've done is study every day home. It takes a rehabilitation phase of a couple of months to actually say, well, I'm actually 28, I need to go out to dinner every night of the week and go and see a movie on the weekend and see my friends and go dancing and doing all those things that you need to do as a human being. But you have to rehabilitate into it. So you have to work at it. You have to join, you know, a mixed netball team or, a, you know, whatever you're going to join as your hobby. And you have to work at that balance. And so that's a really important thing. So I, um, I run and I play tennis and I, I work part time. And that's a good thing uh, for me. And I think if I worked full time, that would really change that balance a lot. And, and so I've chosen to, to work the hours and thankfully the workforce is a lot more flexible now, so we can do that. So that's sort of some of the strategies. I have a great family and I see my friends um, and so they're important things too. And they know what I do for a job, so we sort of talk a little bit about it, um, but so many things outside medicine and that kind of, it's almost seeing the things that happen at work whether they be palliative things, or even before I did palliative medicine, you know, most of the patients you're looking after on the ward are getting sicker over time. People don't turn up to an adult hospital with snotty noses, you know. They've got chronic, debilitating, you know, diseases that, that we manage over time, but they're gonna die early from. And so you end up looking after sick people. So you, no matter what field of medicine you go into, You've got to have that balance and it's something you have to really practice and start working at when you're young. So therefore, you know, investing in something other than just study is a really good idea because that will bring you joy. You know, it's like life's about your quality of life too. It's not all yeah. about your patience. You've got to get that balance. Yeah, if you have your own quality of life worked out, then that helps you to bring better quality of life to others. Yep, yeah. an unhappy doctor is not a good thing and, you know, just in the media in the last couple of weeks you know there have been quite a lot of doctors um, who have been unwell and some have taken their own lives mm -hmm. and and you know that reflects I think on um, how we supervise how we think about medical training how we look at our own lives and it's you know that that is a, a tragedy that is happening and it's sort of how can we invest in junior doctors and medical students to start thinking about balance and thinking about what the thoughts of things that that make their life a good quality of life and getting you to go for it not just you know not just the markets actually yeah. investing in life outside medicine as well because that's going to sustain you for a career now fortunately for yourself you mentioned you work part-time and I know quite a few of your consultant colleagues also work part-time yeah what are the hours like in palliative care yep for most uh, specialties it's a normal working day and then for me, uh, so you know, for doctors that's sort of eight till six or so, round about then. Uh, for me, probably on call for 24 hours a day, for seven days, once every couple of weeks. So that would be five weeks or so, six weeks. Sure. And you get rung all through the night then. But really you need to come into hospital because there's registrars and residents in the hospital. So because it's not a procedural specialty, you don't sort of have to come in in the middle of the night to do that angiogram or something like that. Yeah. Um, quite often there are crises of care so if someone becomes really unwell very quickly sometimes a family uh, 
you know, are really distressed and actually need the consultant to come in and, and have that family conference. But we can normally organise that within hours of working hours or on a weekend, reasonable sort of hours if you're on call. So it's a good specialty to do for family life and mm. for getting that balance because it's, it's not a procedural specialty. Um, because of the sort of, I'd say, resource intenseness of it in that you need social workers and a multidisciplinary team, occupational therapists, specialist nurses, physiotherapists, bereavement counsellors, all that sort of stuff, it tends to be in the public sector, so sure. working a lot in public hospitals or public palliative care units, but that, that might change in the future, but at the moment it's mainly in the public sector. Okay, and what about the training to get there? I know there are a couple of ways, so one is starting from a GP and then you can also go directly into palliative care, so uh, what pathway did you go down? Yep. So. At the moment, you can go, as long as you've got a fellowship to any other college, you can then apply to do palliative okay. medicine training as a specialty. So uh, when I trained, back in the good old days. Just last year. <laughs> That's right. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm much older than I look. Um, but uh, I did physician training because that was my interest in medical oncology. Yeah. So after my resident year, I went into basic physician training and that's three years did the exams, three years of advanced training. So some of that was in medical oncology and some of that was in palliative medicine. Um, and then I was finished. So these days you can go and for acute hospital medicine, I think you really need to be a physician in that it's good to have done all those other terms where you, where you really get a grounding in generally the natural history of diseases. So you, you've looked after people with heart failure and mm. can pick sort of those patients that are getting more of that cardiac cachexia and anorexia and those changing parameters that sort of tell you that they're starting to end, you know, getting to that end of life phase. I've done neurology as a basic trainee, done haematology, done endocrinology, um, renal medicine. So I'm really handy with a vascath and can whip one of those in if you need to. Sounds like Have a one. challenge. <laughs> Any vein I can get into, I'm pretty good at that. Um, yeah, I've done intensive care and all those things are really valuable in bringing this very general knowledge to, so prognosticating and being able to know the natural history of disease. So for me, being a physician was important because it gave me that very sort of broad basement of, of you know, medicine. And, you know, I look after my own patients when they're in atrial fibrillation. I know what to do. You know, I know when to yep. sort of start their ACE inhibitor or stop their ACE inhibitor. And I'm very happy managing their diabetes. I'm very happy, you know, managing renal failure and investigating first phases of renal failure. Um, and I think that's an advantage working in a hospital like this in that, you know, you don't need to consult everyone for everything. Because, you know, my knowledge is yep. sort of a general physician knowledge. Um, other ways to go in can be through the General Practice College, so having a uh, membership at the College of General Practitioners, so doing that, then going into a post-grad palliative medicine program and doing a diploma in palliative medicine, um, so applying for that and then getting specialist status through psychiatry, and there are some psychiatrists who are palliative medicine uh, doctors, and they bring a whole other richness I think and depth of understanding of psychology and existential distress and you know there's some in New Zealand that are published quite a bit and it's always really interesting to read their papers and get, gain insight from that because I don't have any background in psychiatry. Uh, some have been uh, other specialists and been physicians and then moved in, radiation oncologists who've then gone into palliative medicine, some oncologists who've done dual training. Um, so the pathways are actually quite broad, but a membership of another college, so some other 
membership and then doing palliative medicine. Okay, so it sounds very flexible. Even if you don't start off with palliative care, there are many other avenues yes. to go in. Yeah. Now, before we do any procedures or anything like that, we always look for contraindications. So I was wondering, are there any sort of contraindications to someone doing palliative medicine or anything that they should uh, be warned about? Yeah, I think um, for some people that don't really like uh, general medicine and for some people that don't really like having to sit down and chew the fat with patients, it's probably not such a good specialty for you. Um, it's it's a specialty that uh, I think you have to enjoy dealing with sick people and the acute stresses and sometimes the really inflammatory things that happen when families are in distress. So I think some of those skills of being able to uh, not be so upset when there's a lot of transference of a lot of anger and distress. And for some people, they actually would take that on as feeling that, and rightly so, that families may be angry at them. Um, but pulling that apart, it actually may be that they're actually really distressed and angry and you can't name cancer as a person and get angry at it. Mm. You know, you have to have some target. And sometimes uh, I think understanding where people are at and where families are at um, and meeting them where they are. So some families who've got completely deny that their relative may have cancer, completely deny that they're dying, even though biopsies and all sorts of things have shown that, might be on completely alternate therapies, um, and you, you can't come to any point of agreement. And so I suppose the skill to be able to meet them where they're at anyway and deal with the person with the malignancy and do sensible and you know ethical things for them but still respecting the family's wishes who may be completely, you know, in an unrealistic sphere. And unless you can meet people where that is, it's probably not a good specialty for you either. If you're pretty sort of black and white and always like to, to uh, you know, it's, it's a tumour and you can cut it out with stainless steel and it's definitive, then it's probably not the specialty <laughs> for you because there's a fair bit of flexibility you've got to do yeah. in the, your thinking there. Yeah. Now, something one of your colleagues said to me was, um, she felt that doing palliative medicine made her personality really matter. It wasn't about doing a procedure where, you know, the pair of hands holding the scalpel or whatever it is, it could be anyone. She really felt like her personality made a difference. What, what, what do you think about that? I think that's a great comment, yeah. actually. It sort of it reflects on, uh, you know, you as a clinician is actually yeah. who you are as a person anyway. You know, yeah. if you're a introverted, shy kind of person, you can bring about a certain amount of dignity and it's easier probably for you to listen and to reflect on things. I'm a little bit more extroverted and so, you know, I keep on having to be reminded I'm born with two ears and one mouth. So maybe that's a reason I should do twice as much listening as I should do talking. Mm. <laughs> However, that's really hard for me. Uh, it's great for the interview. Though. <laughs> so it, it is, I, I think it, it doesn't exactly matter. There's not a personality yeah. type. Yeah. But I actually think you bring a huge amount of skills and wealth to interpersonal relationships when it is dealing with sick people that need your help. Uh, and for some, you know, it's not just I'm getting in and I'm extracting a tooth or I'm, you know, doing your ca cardiac cath and telling you all is good and not seeing you again. Um, it's this ongoing relationship that you may, they may see you quite intensely for a period of time and then things might be stable because we see some patients for, I've got one patient that I see in clinic and I've been seeing him for about six years and he's got a really slow growing tumour, he's got very young children um, and we've, you know, 
when I see him in clinic, it's just a delight to see him. But now he's starting to really lose a lot of weight and he's he's dying and he's almost become a friend in that sense mm. um, that I've known him for such a long period of time and I know his children really well and they're all now at school and I saw them first when they were at toddlers and, you know, I know his wife really well and she cries every clinic appointment because I usually ask her, and how are you doing? And she cries and then she says, actually, no, it's okay, I'm sort of... So it's different personalities I think uh, it does you require you to bring out some skills of interpersonal skills and it doesn't matter I think whether what sort of personality type you are I think that they all bring we've got introverts in our department we've got extroverts in our department we've got some analytical thinkers we've got completely flowery thinkers <laughs> um, but they all bring something to the table in a team and that's a great thing and so appreciating that so yeah it does bring out those personality types whereas I don't know whether a lot of colleagues say not that I'm any specialty but in the surgical department it really is a lot of technical skill yeah. and and telling patients what's going to happen and disclosing that information but I think technical skill is probably a high highly sought after thing whereas in the specialties where it is relationship based with a patient it's it's um, you do need to use all those skills you've got in your personality armamentarium. Yeah, and, and speaking of um, relationships with patients, I think what you said earlier goes to show that you can have somewhat long-term um, patient interactions in palliative care. It's not just they come in and they go on the next day. Yeah, some people I do meet almost as they're in the terminal phase, yeah. so it's sort of I meet them and their families and for some families it's still they say oh thank goodness you've come I just want to make sure that you know the icing is on the cake and you know everything's being done for their comfort and it's like they look perfectly comfortable and beautiful and it might be that they hadn't been offered the chaplain and it's just looking at that other domain for other people as I said you know I've, I've known them for months and months or years even and it's been this slow change in their tumour and it's you know, being able to talk about those things. Their oncology appointments are often 10 minutes in, how's the side effects of your chemotherapy? Okay, we'll go on to the next cycle and they're, they're back out the door. Whereas, uh, you know, I know a lot, a lot of people's grandchildren and when they started school and whether they make moonshine wine at home and what they've <laughs> built at home. And often patients say, I'm so sorry for taking up so much of your time. And it's like, oh, actually, it's been really important to actually sit down and talk about what your goals are and how things are yeah. for you. And I don't really mind what treatments you're happening. I'm looking at more of how you're going and how those other illnesses are and whether we can sort of adjust those medicines a little bit. And sometimes you don't hear about it in the first 10 minutes of a conversation until you've, they've told you about their new grandchild and a few other things going on. Then you actually hear what, what they actually need. Um, and so, yeah, some patients I know really well over a long period of time too, and that's a joy of this job. Yeah, so well. it sounds like a very rich and rewarding, even if at times depressing, but like you said, all medicine is. And so it's, it's unfair <laughs> to accuse but palliative all, care all, of that. <laughs> all medicine is dealing with really yeah. serious illness in yeah. adults. And, and that's what you'll find when you when you start practice. It's sort of general practice is a lot of preventative and primary health care and looking after the well people. Yeah. A lot of paediatrics, you know, people become very, uh, you know, unwell quickly, but well again really quickly. A lot of surgery is dealing with, you know, people with a surgical problem that's mm. curable. Um, a lot of adult medicine is about dealing with chronic illness and they progressive chronic illnesses. So heart failure, lung failure, yeah. renal failure, neurodegenerative disease, and all of those people are going to have symptoms related to their illness. And it's, it's not just the job of 
palliative care doctors, I think it's our job as doctors to be looking after their symptoms. And sometimes those symptoms are just really tricky and you need specialist help. And that's sort of where I interface with some of the other physicians around the hospital. Um, So the longer you do this, the longer you realise that everyone's sick in hospital. And, you know, (laughs) most teams have their chronic and readmitted patients. And that can sometimes develop into a bit of helplessness for doctors that you feel you're not helping people, that they just come in and they don't seem to get any better and they go back out again and it can make you feel a bit helpless. But having some skills to be able to manage symptoms can empower you to be able to look after them, even if you can't fix the problem. Yeah, and it's a bit of a, do you look at it half um, glass half full or empty? It's do you focus on the sickness or do you focus on what you can do? Yeah, that's yeah. right. And I'm a glass uh, half full person. That's totally full. <laughs> yeah. yeah, full to over brimming. Um, but, glass uh, full of scotch as well. Yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. Whatever it takes for people. Um, but it, yeah, people go, oh, how can you actually be happy working in palliative care? And it's like, oh, I like seeing patients and I really love clinical medicine and nutting out the problems and nutting out the physiology of why that problem's happened. What can you do to reverse that problem? What's the etiology of the problem? So is it actually something we can use a drug to block or fix or get around um, or a stent or an intervention? And so for, for us here, we, you know, I have patients under me that go to theatre and have orthopaedic procedures. We have patients that go to the gastroenterology suite and have stenting. We uh, you know, have patients that go under the acute pain service and have intrathecal pain relief put in so it's really dynamic as well and often I'm ringing the radiation oncologist saying hi I've got my patient I think you need to radiate this bone and it's sort of we have a discussion and that happens so you really are directing care as well so it's a pretty active involvement Um, and that's that's really thrilling when you get someone who was miserable and um, a whole nother topic would be people that are so miserable that life's not worth living for them and that actually want to be euthanized and um Often when you talk to people about that, it's because they've got really poor symptom control or they've got existential distress, uh, a carer stress, and no one looks after them. Which is where you come in and you can really make a difference there. Yeah, and so those conversations repeated after they've had contact and after had symptoms managed and things like that are often a different flavour and people are saying, you know, I'm actually glad that I didn't have euthanasia because actually I feel a whole lot better now and there are manageable things I can do and also I know if things do get out of control I know who's going to be there to actually help manage my symptoms and our whole job is to actually manage people's symptoms especially in end-of-life care that's critical um, because that lives on in families lives and it lives on in the staff's lives and it lives on in the doctors that look after them Um, so we need to manage end-of-life care well so if you had to sum up palliative care in a single word (laughs) What would that be? Ooh. Tough question. Can I have two words? If they're hyphenated, sure. Yeah. yeah. Good living. <laughs> Excellent. Quality. Quality. <laughs> Quality. Quality of life. <laughs> All hyphenated. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Catherine. I think you've really given us a, a real view of what palliative care is about, sort of the ups and downs and, and what it really involves. So thank you so much for being on our show. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye.